Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. Thanks for joining us. It's been a while. Really looking forward to uh, getting back in the swing of things with a podcast here. We've got a lot of interesting guests uh, that I think we're going to have lined up here for uh, doing another another round of podcasts. But today we've got a really exciting show. We're revisiting a topic. Um, folks may remember a little while ago we spoke with Dr. Samantha Montano on the Me Too movement and its role uh, in relation to emergency management and the need to increase diversity in the field. Uh, we take that conversation even further today, talking with the CEO and the COO of the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Management. So the Institute CEO, Chauncey Willis, joins us along with this, her colleague and the COO of the Institute, Curtis Brown. And they're both uh, career emergency managers in their own right and really looking at this from the perspective of not only how do we increase diversity in the field and what are the mechanisms and how emergency management operates that can benefit from this, but how does that investment in diversity ultimately pay out in terms of the bottom line of emergency management, which is, of course, better preparedness, better resilience, and better outcomes when disasters do strike. So great to be talking with you guys again. Thanks for joining. So sit back, relax, and we'll see you on the other side. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We've got two great guests on the show today. Uh, we have the co-founders of the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Management. We have with us two very experienced emergency managers in their own right, uh, Chauncey Willis and Curtis Brown. Chauncey is a graduate of Loyola University in New Orleans, studied government and policy at Georgia State, at the Andrew Young School of Policy, where she earned her master's in public administration, and, and really looks a lot at the psychology of disaster trauma, community resilience planning, and the impacts of social inequities pre- and post-disaster. She's also a graduate of the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching and the FEMA Emergency Management Academy, and is a, uh, a certified emergency manager. Curtis received his Bachelor of Science in Political Science from Radford University, his Master's in Public Administration from Virginia Tech, and another Master of Arts and Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness from Virginia Commonwealth University. And he's a graduate of the Virginia Executive Institute, the Commonwealth Management Institute, and FEMA's Emergency Management Executive Academy, and is also a certified emergency manager. So I'm thrilled to have two guests on who who have the, uh, the, the academic background sort of in organizational management, the field experience as emergency manager and just really sort of looking at this in such a solutions-oriented way. So thanks to the both of you. Thanks so much for, for being on the show today. Well, thank thanks you for lot. having us. Sure. Um, so I, I'm sure that I left out a lot, and I'd love to hear from you guys just sort of your own pathway to this and to the creation of the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion. Um, Chachi, I don't know if you want to get us started and talk a little bit on your pathway here. Well, sure. Yes. Well, thanks again for um, inviting us to speak about this important issue. Um, really, this um, was this institute was born out of a need for change. Uh, we attended. I was speaking at a conference um, in Tampa, Florida, and it was a leadership conference in emergency management and. They really wanted everyone to speak to the pressing issues that were 
really on their mind, at the forefront of thought and things of that nature. And while everyone else was probably going to focus on policy, I was more focused on the uh, needs of the people. And I relate to the audience my experiences in emergency management, dealing with the uh, issues of race, dealing with the issues of gender discrimination, um, and dealing with the issues of professional isolation, where you walk into a room and you really are the only one that looks like you that is, is having your perspective. And um, I worked on that presentation with Curtis, and, you know, he said it's really monumental, and I think the audience of other emergency managers needs to hear our story. So this is our opportunity to tell it. And um, after I, you know, was speaking and, and I, I spoke, and after the presentation, people really seemed to, um, they, they came up to me and they told me that it really resonated with them and that they wanted to do more and what could they do to improve their, uh, their experiences as managers, emergency managers, in, in, in changing the way that uh, the victims of disaster are perceived and changing the way policies are implemented and even, you know, policies, how policies are created. So it really seemed to resonate with the other emergency managers, and, and that's kind of how we uh, got started with the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Management. That's great. And I, I can't wait to kind of unpack a little bit more and more on sort of how these programs play out. But um, uh, before we get into that, Curtis, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your, uh, your backstory, too, and how, uh, how you ended up here and, and um, your work with the Institute. Uh, well, I've known Chauncey for several uh, years through uh, professional, you know, organizations and conferences, and I've, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity is a, a conversation that's come up uh, often, uh, given you know the lack of diversity in the field and what we've seen in multiple disasters, uh, the disproportionate impact of disasters on, on vulnerable, marginalized communities, communities of color, low-income communities, et cetera. And, and as Chauncey mentioned at the conference, um, it really, her, her participation in the panel really had a, a great impact. And it initiated a conversation of saying, you know, how can we uh, formalize and sustain a specific focus on diversity, inclusion, and equity in emergency management? I think a lot of emergency managers are well-intentioned. Uh, they they want to see a more diverse uh, uh, field uh, we talk about whole community engaging different uh, individuals and communities, but I, I don't think that there is a, a specific sustainable focus from uh, any any organization looking at that just for our field, looking at how we can uh, recruit and retain uh, a more diverse cadre of women and people of color and, uh, and other represented groups. How we can look at our our, our the multi multitude of issues within each phase of emergency management from an equitable uh, lens. Um, and so we wanted to, to fill that gap. And so over the last year, uh, we spoke to a lot of people, we did a lot of research, and it helped us to frame how to identify the mission, vision, and goals of, uh, of IDEAM, the Institute for Diversity Inclusion Emergency Management. So it really comes from a place of, you know, we've been in this field for several years now, and we wanna make sure that it's more inclusive, uh, more engaged, that the, the outcomes 
and disasters are more equitable. And, and actually that we, we leverage diversity, inclusion, equity to build resilience because all of the research, all of the things that we're seeing now uh, through through climate change and extreme weather says that uh, we, we need to enhance what we're doing because we're going to see more frequent and more impactful storms and the communities uh, that are going to be impacted are our diverse communities, communities of color. Uh, a lot of the research uh, says that both uh, here in America and, and internationally. So if we're going to build resilience, I think uh, diversity, inclusion, equity uh, can be leveraged uh, by the field to uh, to create better outcomes. You know, you both uh, bring up, I think, really, I think, important points, right, that there's this this notion that you know disasters don't affect people equally right that that um that oftentimes the recovery can be predicted by socioeconomic status by race by by gender um and so we still see a lot of these divides and um i think both of you mentioned and, and chancy i know you you mentioned in your comments already that uh feeling like you're the only one representing this perspective in the room. And I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit more about that as well, too, that, um, you know, we know that we need to do a better job of getting into communities um, post-storm, pre-storm, or disaster. But um, why is it so important that they're in the room within the agency? Uh, And uh, why should we be concerned if that's not the case? Well, I can give you a great example. I love that question. I can give you a great example of the realities of um, exclusion from the conversation. And the reality is that if we are excluding people from the conversation, from participating, then we are also excluding them from recovering equitably. We're excluding them from the opportunity to be self-resilient. Um, when I was, um, you know, I've, I've had a, 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 I've been fortunate to have a rather long, um, um, you know, career in emergency management. And I can remember uh, during Hurricane Katrina walking into an EOC and hearing a conversation taking place amongst other emergency managers. And as a, an African-American female, I typically am what I have terms professionally isolated in that I am the only black female or the only female or the only black person. And as I talk to other emergency managers, I, I, I hear that over and over again. But the conversation that was taking place in that emergency operations room, uh, in that emergency operations center, was that uh, the people that had been deployed were very disappointed and they were saying, you know, If it were up to me, I wouldn't give those people another dime. All they're going to do is buy a 40 ounce. Mm -hmm. And it was other comments. um, It was other comments like that that really, really made me very, very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It hurt. And I identified with the victims of the disaster because they looked like me. Mm-hmm. And you thought that receiving assistance after a traumatic disaster that had basically taken everything they've had, it's the worst day of their life, the worst time period of their life, your perception was that they didn't deserve equal and fair assistance because they were too ignorant 
to know what to do with the money, they would probably just buy a 40 ounce um, and other stereotypical things uh, that were um, communicated. So, you know, when we were talking about why do we need to have more diversity at the table? Why do we need to have more diversity, more women, more people of color, more people who are of different abilities, different backgrounds? Why do we need them at the table? Well, it's because the perspective cannot be of one specific gender and race alone. And right now, the emergency management, uh, the field of emergency management is improving in terms of gender. There are more women coming into the field, but we are still uh, low on just about every other, <laughs> yeah. every other aspect of diversity. And that's critical. We need the other perspectives. And when we have those other perspectives, the outcomes will be much more equitable. We will have more consideration of the people who, who are experiencing these disasters and understand their perspectives better and what they're experiencing and be more competent in communicating with them. And uh, so right now, my uh, belief is that we need to change the prototype of the emergency manager and what we anticipate or, or expect makes uh, a, a competent emergency manager. We need to rethink that. It's great, uh, um, I think, insight into all of this, too. And I think a lot of times we think that we can just kind of think our perspective into someone else's shoes. And I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I think it's an important point that, um, mm -hmm. you know, the... Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say we all bring our own biases into the conversation, whether we're aware of it or not. <laughs> and the lens right. the lens at which we're looking at things and interpreting things and valuing things is driven a lot by our own personal experiences. And if you have a very singular set of experiences in the room, you're not going to get the perspectives, the representation of the communities not in the room. Um, and and right. as you mentioned, oftentimes the most disenfranchised aren't the ones who are traditionally going to be working on the government payroll, uh, which is sort of something that affects all all industries. Uh, and I, I remember looking at some data from the American Community Survey, and uh, just uh, to your point that, um, you know, the uh, among emergency managers, and this looked at public-private sector, uh, and, and solely among emergency managers, not as the field as a whole, but using that as a potential sample of representation, uh, the field was still 75% uh, male and 90% white, um, with women earning, I believe, about three-quarters as much as men. So you sort of saw that, as, as you mentioned, there's a little bit more um, diversity in terms of gender, but racial diversity is still incredibly low, um, at least as of the last time that was looked at. And, you know, looking around, mm -hmm. it's um, uh, not yeah. hard to see that the needle is moving pretty slowly on that. Um, Curtis, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, as well as um, just kind of your thoughts, too, as well as uh, I know Chauncey talked a little bit about this, too, is, is the current state of diversity within emergency management. Is this, is this mm -hmm. getting better? And if so, is it getting better at an acceptable pace? Uh, I, I think it uh, marginally is getting better, but not at an acceptable pace, especially given the rate of uh, increasing diversity across the country. Uh, all Every uh, statistic and data point uh, points to a more diverse country. And, you know, our field, uh, in many respects, as a as a measure, try to reflect uh, the communities that we serve. And right now, uh, we do not. Um, uh, we, we lack the diversity, uh, we lack the inclusiveness, and it, it has a direct impact on the way in which we uh, practice our field. 
and again, I, I, I view it as a positive. We can, we can benefit from leveraging diversity, inclusion, equity to improve outcomes and build resilience. Um, and, and that's the, the gap we're trying to fill. Um, uh, one example that I've heard multiple times over the last uh, year uh, or so when um, me and Chauncey was doing outreach is the example of uh, post-disaster uh, disaster recovery centers being set up in communities. And so this is a practical example of the lack of, of understanding diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and multiple people have said the same story that the disaster recovery center was set up uh, far away from uh, the low income uh, African-American community or other community that was directly impacted by the disaster. It was set up on the other side of town. Well, if you do not have adequate transportation, if there's not a bus route, um, if you're not able to get on that other side of town, you cannot um, initiate recovery and get the supports you need to recover. And so, you know, that is is simple if you have someone that is a simple understanding of a of a pretty basic issue. Just just move the you know recovery center, be strategic and intentional and in your recovery and under that the people who need to be served have certain limitations. But when you do not have the diversity in the room, when you're not inclusive of the people impacting the community, uh, you make mistakes like that. And and what that does is it it generates the the distrust, uh, the the longstanding distrust of of government. It builds uh, it it reminds folks of the many years of inequitable practices uh, and and institutional racism that has really designed certain communities uh, in many respects to fail. So, as merge managers, I think we need to be aware of this history, uh, history of, of of redlining, of putting uh, toxic chemical plants uh, in in low-income communities, all of these things heighten our heighten the vulnerabilities of these. Uh, they create the distrust, and so as we as we prepare, as we mitigate, as we recover and, and respond, uh, we need to do so understanding this history and creating more equitable practices and building really uh, engaging, sustainable relationships with the folks in the community um, in, in order to improve. But I, I think uh, to get back to the point of diversity, I think if we can build a, a more diverse cadre of emergency managers from individuals from these diverse communities, uh, I think it'll go a long way in, in trying to, to build the trust that we need to deal with the uh, emerging threat of, of more uh, impactful and and um, uh, with more uh, extreme weather that we've seen over the last couple of years. You know, I'm reminded of kind of two examples as well, too, of this, <clears throat> excuse me, and how this sort of plays out in disasters. So um, a colleague of mine, uh, Jonathan Surrey, put together some maps to, um, you know, we were trying to answer some questions. Uh, we first did it during Hurricane Harvey, sort of asking the question of, you know, we had some media requests and we're wondering how many vulnerable populations live in the evacuation zone, how many people below the poverty line, how many families on food stamps, you know, things that predictors that we know are going to help identify 
people who we don't know who's going to need help, but we know where more help is going to be needed rather than others. And uh, he started putting together these maps with publicly available data, with the social vulnerability indices and things like that. And I remember seeing along the coastal areas, it's it's amazing. You would see right along the coast, the beach houses and things like that, very low levels of social vulnerability. And then you go just a, a mile or less inland and you see very high levels of social vulnerability. And then when we were doing work in, in Rockport and in Texas and North Carolina, you, you sort of see why that is, where you have these very expensive homes that are insured, that are, you know, sort of where all the cameras are looking at, that have a lot less damage. And then inland, you have all of the affordable housing. You have, uh, you know, where a lot of the service industry workers work that work in the restaurants and, and things, a lot of, um, and you can go down there to this day and you're still going to see, you know, the, the, a lot of people in a lot of need because they haven't been able to access the resources or get to the to the resources, even though the, the sort of visual perception of the area from the tourist areas and the, the beach areas is, is much better. The other thing that I'm reminded of is a lot of research that uh, Daniel Aldrich, who was on this podcast a while ago, uh, along with others, have led looking at social cohesion. And he talks about horizontal and vertical kind of social capital and horizontal is neighbors helping neighbors and vertical is connections with government institutions like emergency management. And that um, uh, horizontal capital, neighbors helping neighbors, tends to insulate you from health and mental health um, adverse effects. You tend to do better physically and mentally if you have those those resources, neighbors helping neighbors. But the, the, the vertical social capital, the vertical um, relationships with government really predicted recovery and that having access to those government institutions, sort of circling back to what you're saying, being in the room, being on the radar, being front of mind with everything else going on helped facilitate because most recovery resources, as we know, come through the emergency management agency or or at least are coordinated to a certain extent through that, even among the, the larger nonprofits and things like that. So um, again, just <laughs> agreeing in a long form way with everything you guys have seen with a, uh, just a few other sort of visuals and stories that we've heard um, as well. Uh, I'm curious mm -hmm. too, I mean, both of you have been very involved both through the Institute as well as, you know, within um, your own scope of practice, working within local and state um, emergency management agencies and, and connecting with federal partners, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, we're getting better at recognizing and describing the problem. How do we fix it? You know, what are some of the things that you've seen that have been good approaches towards uh, increasing diversity, increasing inclusion uh, to, to, to better enhance the field and ultimately the services that it provides? I think that's a great question. What can we do about it? Uh, to be quite honest, uh, founding the Institute <laughs> for Diversity and Inclusion and Emergency Management was really our way of uh, moving the needle forward and creating a laser focus on the issue. Now, other emergency managers who are operating in the field, there are quite a, there's a variety of things that can be done. Um, at the federal level, I mean, when it comes to implementing policy, creating policy, you know, and um, and looking at the different uh, guidance that comes out, I think everything must be viewed through a lens of diversity and inclusion. And I think when we're even training new emergency managers or those who are, who are already operating in the field, we have to 
give them the understanding that diversity and inclusion awareness is a critical component to be considered as a as a, 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 a an emergency manager. You must have that awareness, even if it's a basic awareness, we need you to understand that diversity and inclusion and equity are critical as a as a as being components of a qualified emergency manager. No longer can we accept the retired uh, military guy or the firefighter or the you know law enforcement officer who is transitioning to you know their second retirement field um, <laughs> as a qualified emergency manager. And no offense to those who have served, you know, in other capacities very diligently. But as a profession, we have to become much more aware of what we are are dealing with. We have to understand that backgrounds in the humanities and the arts, those that are those that have been operating in in skill in uh, in careers or in in who are receiving education in those areas of um, where they're really focused on people, those are the ones that we need to begin recruiting. We need to introduce them to the field of emergency management and encourage them to remain in the field. We need those who have the soft skills, who have the people skills, who who understand that it's not about responding, uh, you know, uh, within five minutes anymore. It's about making sure that you have addressed the needs and know where these pockets and where these social vulnerable, socially vulnerable people exist, and and it's about being um, being uh, uh, tactical in our understanding of the people and being strategic in how we are implementing our uh, policies as it relates to emergency management, even at the local level, state, and federal level. We need to be, you know, more inclusive in everything that we're doing. So for me, I think it's really about changing the mindset of the everyday emergency manager and, uh, and promoting a different mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, um, and I also appreciate uh, bringing up just how much the field has sort of changed in terms of the pipeline where, you know, pre-9-11, mm-hmm. uh, particularly at, at, uh, in the civilian state and local level, you know, it was sort of filled by, you know, as you mentioned, it was like, you know, when you were sort of at the later end of your career in a, a first response agency, went to the training arm or the emergency management agency if they oversaw it. <laughs> right. um, and again, as you mentioned, no disrespect to that, back then emergency management was much more an extension of the first responder community. Um, and the mission changed a lot over the last few decades, um, particularly post 9-11, to be more whole community. Um, and I've, I've seen agencies, you know, sort of struggle to take on that new mission and and even FEMA you know they have the whole community mandate through uh, a presidential directive but their authorizing legislation still focuses mostly on first responders uh, state and local responders mm-hmm. and emergency management so they're always sort of kind of pulled between two worlds um, you know adapting and evolving to that um, but um, mm-hmm. Curtis I, I want you to weigh in here as well too and some of the programs that you've seen uh, that have been put in place and thoughts that you have as well too on on uh, how we can fix this and quickly. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, no, I, 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 I'll just uh, uh, amplify some of the things that Chauncey mentioned. The, yeah, you, I think you have to really be intentional to focus on this complex issue and really invest and invest in a sustainable way. Uh, in the private sector, uh, most of the Fortune 
500 companies uh, now have chief diversity inclusion officers uh, who uh, have a, a budget and a staff and focus on on you know not only branding but uh, uh, also recruitment, hiring, retention, looking uh, throughout uh, the agency to ensure that uh, all the practices uh, uh, promote diversity, inclusion, and equity. And uh, you know we've seen that is needed uh, uh, throughout uh, the private sector. We've seen issues where uh, certain uh, uh, branding uh, efforts have been viewed as, as biased. It impacts their bottom line. Um, the, I think the public sector, emergency management in particular here, could do the same thing. We, we need chief diversity inclusion officers in our agencies who can look throughout it, understanding each phase of emergency management um, and, and changing our practices to ensure that uh, we're building resilience in the communities that need it the most. So here at my agency, uh, I'm the number two in the agency. Uh, 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 last year, I was designated as the Chief Diversity Inclusion Officer, and part of that focus has been to look at uh, recruitment, retention, uh, look at our programs to uh, see if we uh, can do better outreach to various communities uh, across the state. And so um, having that uh, strategic, sustainable, intentional focus on diversity and inclusion, I think, is needed in the field. As Chauncey mentioned, we need to do training. Um, to train on these issues. Um, it's not just a, a check the box one time training. These issues are constantly evolving and there's a lot of lessons learned from every disaster that we have that we can continue to pull from. So uh, again, I, I, I think the uh, Mercy Management Institute earlier this year had a cultures of preparedness report that really spoke to this, how emergency management has really been focused on the technical skill sets of ICS and NIMS, et cetera. But uh, we needed to focus more attention on uh, our communities and our soft skills and cultivating leaders to understand the communities that we serve. And so this is essentially what, what I deem is trying to do as it relates to uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, understand these very complex uh, issues and, and dedicate the time and attention to uh, provide emergency management with the data um, and knowledge that they need, uh, promote research in the field, and uh, hopefully impact the way we practice uh, our field uh, to to leverage diversity, inclusion, and equity um, to to change outcomes in communities. I, I'm so glad you brought up that report too. I'm going to find it and link it in the podcast description too. I think I think it might have been out of the Higher Education Committee or something, but it was this amazing report. If folks haven't seen it. Um, from FEMA, sort of looking at culture of preparedness and looking at needing to recognize the diversity within communities. Um, I, I mean, frankly, it's one of the best products of the federal government I think I've ever seen. Um, but I think because of the nature of how it was created by sort of a, a bunch of experts and a committee sort of formed, um, it just seemed very... Uh, it was one of the most robust explanations that I'd seen of the challenges and also the uh, way ahead in terms of addressing uh, diversity and inclusion sort of through this lens of the culture of preparedness and whole community. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and Jeff, and, and uh, excuse me for cutting you off, but no, yeah, that, that is one of the things that we're trying to do there. There have over the last year or two, there have been a number of 
uh, remarkable reports dealing with diversity, inclusion, equity, and emergency management. Uh, unfortunately, as what what usually happens, there's this, this this there's a divide between the practitioners and academia, and we're trying to build a bridge to make sure that this research and data is getting the hands of the folks who can use it the most, and and change the practices. There's also a ton of opportunities for additional research uh, uh, once data is shared and, and there's more collaboration between academia and practitioners, emergency managers. Uh, and I also wanted to mention a, another report from the NAACP uh, entitled In the Eye of the Storm, uh, People's Guide to Transforming Crisis and Advancing in the Disaster Continuum. And it's a, a pretty uh, thorough, in-depth report and is intended to uh, uh, train diverse communities, NAACP uh, chapters on how to uh, understand uh, diversity and inclusion, emergency management. And it actually points to throughout the, the report to several issues that have occurred in the past and uh, provide solutions on how to fix them. So it, it's that report. Uh, we've, we've reached out to, to Dr. Junior Howe, uh, University of Pittsburgh, uh, a professor who did a study uh, focused on looking at uh, our recovery programs and had found uh, that our recovery are biased, that that after the disasters, uh, white communities get, get richer, um, uh, black and brown communities get poorer, and it really points to the need for us to, to change how we do recovery because uh, wh whether it's intention or not intention, um, is, is biased and the impact is, is greatest on uh, 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 vulnerable and marginalized communities. So these reports are, are eye-opening, they're impactful, they really call attention to the need for us to change our practices. Uh, but what we are trying to do is to, to package this research in a way that can get into the hands of practitioners so we can, we can make the changes uh, that are necessary. Yeah, and I'll uh, try to link to as many of these as possible. I know there was that NPR report that sort of played off that last study you mentioned as well, too, and and spoke to a lot of that sort of bias in the recovery programs. I always think of, uh, you know, post-disaster recovery and really the way that money flows is, is um, I, in my head, I always use the image of like water flowing down the side of a mountain, is it carves deeper and deeper channels where it always goes, and then the places away from it kind of get drier and drier, and that the recovery money just follows the same pathways down. And so if people don't already have access to that, and we've looked at as well too, just you know the, the, the sheer complexity of these programs. If you don't have an, an accountant, if you don't have right. you know, a lawyer on retainer, and even if you do, um, wow, they're just uh, it's something like, um, uh, what is it? as many as 90 programs across 20 different agencies, and those are just the federal programs. Um, mm -hmm. So the, um, but the other thing, I, I also just want to get back to a little bit, Curtis, I, I definitely want to highlight, I, I appreciate how you mentioned the the private sector and the Fortune 500 companies sort of investing in these uh, uh, diversity officers, uh, because it's, it is one of those things where, you know, one, they've made an assessment and said, look, this investment is going to pay off. Like it's going to affect the bottom line in a positive mm -hmm. way to have more diversity and to have more perspectives in the organization. And I think in emergency management, when the bottom line is uh, uh, decreasing the suffering after a disaster, that that's a pretty important bottom line as well to invest within. But also there's a difference between talking about it and really 
meaningfully investing in it. I always find too that, you know, whether it's in university or elsewhere, everybody's willing to help out until you need an account number to put something against. <laughs> and then it's, <laughs> you know, um, I, uh, but I also wanted to ask too, you know, one of the things I hear about a lot, um, is, you know, investing in the pipeline, investing in outreach into communities and youth programs and things like that. And I kind of have, to be honest, mixed feelings on it. One of it, I mean, I think it absolutely should be done 100%, that increasing the pipeline. I know as a hiring manager, you know, it's, it's diversity is important to me, but I also need qualified candidates who are applying for the job. So, you know, uh, one is making awareness that qualified candidates are aware of it throughout all communities, but increasing, you know, um, exposure to to youth uh, in all communities of the work of being emergency managers. But I also feel like sometimes people point to one or two programs to kind of give an excuse for not dealing with the issue today. Um, and, and maybe that's a little bit of a loaded question, but um, I'm curious of your thoughts on kind of the, the programs that are in place now and, and kind of what what's really needed and, and if we sort of kind of allow ourselves to ignore the near term by by kind of writing off with some of these longer term programs. Yeah, I mean, um, I would agree. I would agree 100% with that. I, that's the human, you know, that's human nature in some regard to uh, basically become complacent because you have the option to. Now, when you don't have the option to not uh, to do nothing, well, then you're motivated to act, and sometimes it's too late. So really what we're saying with the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion and Emergency Management is that the time is now. The time to, to interrupt the cycle is now. The call to arms, so to speak, is now. We want everyone um, in the field and even our... Um, even the people that we're serving every day, we want everyone to increase their understanding of of disaster. We want them to understand the programs, and we also want new programs put in place. And we want we want our emergency management field to become energized uh, to to really doing something before a disaster occurs, before we have another Katrina, Maria, Harvey, where we we already know the issues. Let's do the investment in particular in specific programs now. Let's educate our communities now. Let's do those demographic assessments now and find out where the where the need will be. And there are a lot of existing programs that are available. Um, and as you said, we can do more. We can do better uh, when it comes to you know just just at a basic level knowing your community knowing your county, knowing your state, and understanding who the people are and what their needs are. For the most part, the information is available. Mm -hmm. And most emergency managers, I won't say most, I would say many emergency managers just don't take the time to avail themselves of the information. As Curtis highlighted, articles are being, being written about these issues left and right. The research is available. The data is there. We just need to read more. We need to we need to increase our uh, capacity for compassion. We need to put ourselves in others' shoes so that we can really create thoughtful, meaningful uh, solutions to some of these issues before they even become issues. You see what I'm saying? 
So I think we just need to really become more engaged and intentional in our uh, emergency management process, the entire uh, field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that point, too, that the, the data is out there. And that's one of the things we found, you know, with some of the mapping we were doing for some of the, the media inquiries is that, you know, all of the data that we could find was where the evacuation zones, where the routes, very nuts and bolts sort of logistics. Um, and we find a lot of the community assessments when we do resilience building are very hazard focused. What are the hazards? And so we've kind of gotten in the process now of when we do sort of projects and, and you know, um, as an academic institution uh, through, through the center that I work at is um, to, to take this publicly available data and do these um, community profiles that actually look at income inequality, um, racial um, uh, demographics, uh, social isolation, things like that. One community we're working within is actually a very wealthy community, but has a high degree of social vulnerability because it has, you know, pockets of intense poverty, and it's driven mm. and it's predictable primarily by race. It's a, it's a, um, mm. literally a black and white, you know, issue with a with a very long, extensive history of um, mm. uh, of racial inequality and racial injustice and in, in, um, the community that that to their credit they're embracing and, and looking to resolve and and taking a proactive approach but as you mentioned the data is there it's just not part of the workflow right. of the right, you know, right. traditional hazard assessment and and uh, emergency management training at least historically hasn't been um, but hopefully it's mm-hmm. starting to change yeah uh, are there yeah. are there larger so I guess kind of along this line are there kind of broader policy changes you would want to see nationally globally uh, or even at the state and local level what kinds of policies I know we talked about some of this of of uh, the uh, diversity and inclusion officers of um, uh, we sort of nipped around the edges a little bit talking about the um, you know the way that things are done in terms of the data that's looked at isn't actually all the data that's relevant um, but I'm curious if, if you have other thoughts on sort of larger plays to really kind of uh, uh, force more action on this? Uh, you know, I, I think we have to make uh, this a, a performance measure, uh, how we measure what we're doing in the field. Um, uh, are we diverse? Are we inclusive? Uh, are our practices equitable? And, and what outcomes do they have uh, on the various communities that we serve? Um, so I think we need to create uh, performance measures to, you know, promote and also incentive uh, diversity and inclusion uh, across the full spectrum of the merge management uh, enterprise. Um, uh, and, and just to go back to to your point about recruitment, um, and, and this also impacts, you know, uh, performance measures and policy changes, um, we have to be intentional in terms of of our pipeline development and building these relationships. Uh, back in April, we had an opportunity, uh, me and Chauncey and a couple other emergency managers had an opportunity to go to Savannah State University, uh, which is a historically black college university. And it's, it's actually the first HBCU to establish an emergency management uh, program uh, in the country and the first one in the state. Of- and it was great to see a, a, a class full of, of African-American male and, and largely female uh, students who were interested in the field of emergency management. And so we were able to share our experiences uh, both uh, uh, in the profession and, and our successes, 
some of our failures and lessons learned. And the main thing that they talked about was get having an opportunity to get experiential learning experience, internship, uh, to to prepare for the field of emergency management. Um, you know, given given the uniqueness of Savannah State uh, training and preparing uh, 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 these African American students to be emergency managers, I think we should be intentional in, in our outreach and identifying internship opportunities for these young people. Uh, whether it's assisting with uh, a recovery, uh, learning, you know, public assistance, individual assistance, getting some hands-on training on the local, state, or federal level in emergency management. So if we're intentional in these relationships, uh, and there's a number of, of you know, HBCUs, uh, 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 minority-serving institutions across the country uh, where uh, there are students who are actually in emergency management programs, uh, but they're looking for opportunities to to get hands-on experience. Uh, to Chauncey's earlier point, uh, changing the prototype of who the emergency manager is, you know, we can we can recruit from the humanities and other areas within inside an institution and and train them on emergency management practices uh, to pull them in. And and I don't want to be remiss in, in mentioning that we we have a number of existing emergency managers who are women or people of color, but for some reason have have hit the glass ceiling because of internal practices. And so we need to identify leadership opportunities uh, with them. Um, and, and to your point about policies, um, I, I think, you know, we have a great opportunity uh, with a number of things going on in the emergency management, uh, the, the Disaster Recovery Act that was just passed not too long ago is going to invest uh, millions of dollars of funding for mitigation uh, projects uh, within across the country. Um, you know, we believe that, you know, equity and inclusion should be found in our mitigation and how we're building resilience. And all the data and research again says that, that these uh, low income vulnerable uh, communities of color are going to be disproportionately impacted by extreme weather. And so as a, as a policy uh, uh, change or, or focus, uh, let's commit to, you know, dedicating that funding to, to build resilience where it's needed the most. And that's in these communities that are disproportionately uh, more vulnerable and also disproportionately more at risk. Absolutely. And I, I think the, um, <laughs> I mean, you just bring up so many great points about how, you know, the pressures on disenfranchised communities, the pressures on sort of the divides within this country through the lens of disasters is only going to be increasing. And so these investments are so important. But it also, I mean, I appreciate how both of you are kind of bringing also that it's not all all negative, right? A lot of great work is being done. A lot of thinking is coming together. Um, I mean, and, and your institute is one example, uh, a great sort of leading example of, um, of how, you know, we're looking to connect the uh, the research with the reality um, to make it truly more inclusive, not only as a field but also in the the impact that it has. I, uh, I <laughs> also thinking about you know in terms of the pipeline of folks and and reaching out. You know I think uh, creating internships. Uh, a, a lot of folks come to me and ask me. You know I'm interested in this field and whether they're uh, students and in, in other programs or folks mid-career who are really interested in the work, you know, one of the most important things I know that I always look at on a resume is any kind of experience with emergency management, mm -hmm. because it touches so much of 
all of the work that's done and as a uh, even being an academic center um, that I'm based at, in order to be relevant, it has to be able to cross that divide from from the thinking to the doing. And that's where I find, too, it's it's so valuable to have folks who, even if they ultimately reside on the research side, to have that practical exposure um, and vice versa. You know, as you mentioned, to have emergency managers, to have more of a requirement to engage with the research. And um, the producers of the research need to um, do more to... Um, not just publish in obscure journals. <laughs> and that's slowly happening as well, too. <laughs> a whole nother, right. whole nother podcast. <laughs> you said it. I did. Hey, I was, uh, <laughs> I, uh, um, and then to your point, there, there's a lot of, and, and one of the great things about what we've been able to do over the last year is we've reached out to a lot of folks who are doing a lot of great things within the space of diversity, inclusion, and equity, and emergency management. Uh, we we would like to amplify what they're doing and uh, you know put it out there so folks can can model it um, uh, with inside the uh, uh, with uh, actually an example is Arlington Virginia they have a program called Hurricane and it's a play on on the word hurricane uh, but it's H E R uh, you know hurricane and the focus of the program is to uh, target uh, middle aged school girls and to encourage them to, to uh, you know, promote interest in the field of emergency management. And that's an example of, of a, a targeted effort to uh, increase diversity in the field. And I believe that they've uh, partnered with a couple of other localities across the country um, as well. Um, there's, there's a lot of great work being done related to people uh, with disabilities and disasters and being uh, more inclusive and intentional in how we do emergency management. I know Mar Marcy Roth, uh, who used to be with FEMA, is doing a lot of great work with that and, and uh, testified before Congress yesterday um, on, uh, on some of those efforts. Uh, King County, uh, Washington, the Seattle area has done a lot of great work with diversity, inclusion, emergency management. So uh, there's a lot of synergy and energy around um, this topic and what we would like to do is to to amplify it and make sure that that information is getting in the hands of the people who need it the most, uh, our, our, our fellow emergency managers who are who are already tapped. We understand we mm -hmm. all got multiple hats we wear, uh, but I, I, you know, we believe that this issue will be uh, one of the most impactful, and important issues as we move forward in this century, uh, given the threats we face. And so we're gonna we're gonna try to make uh, you know be intentional and sustainable in our efforts to to provide the field with the information they need to be to to, to be successful. And, and I'm glad you mentioned disability inclusion as well. We're actually working with Marcy to schedule uh, uh, an interview for her for the podcast as well. So that we'll do a deep dive oh, on that great. aspect too. Yeah, it's a it's a small yeah, world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. but again, just so many great folks sort of working in this space and really impactful roles. Um, and so um, you know, as folks listen to this and they, and they hear and and sort of want to do more within their agencies, within their communities, um, how can folks find out more about the Institute, more about the work? How can they get on your lists? Um, how can they find find and uh, follow you? Well, we um, have a website. Uh, we'd love for uh, everyone to visit our website, and uh, that website is I, 
hyphen d i e m dot org i d m dot org i dash d i m dot org and uh, we are also available on the uh, other social media platforms and we will uh, be hosting an event uh, during the institute for the international association of emergency um, management uh, conference in savannah we're also going to be hosting a thought leaders workshop uh, it's by invitation only, but the information that is garnered from the workshop will be publicly available. So we'd love for everyone to um, kind of take a look at what comes from that and, and get involved in diversity and inclusion in emergency management. That's great. So so folks should follow uh, the website as a hub for this, the various social media accounts, and we'll link to all that in the podcast description as well. Um, and, and yeah, just, uh, you know, I want to thank both of you for, for coming on the podcast for, um, you know, spending, uh, <laughs> a bit of your time talking to me about this and, and the listeners, but also, you know, recognizing that there's a lot of work you've done before this and are doing after this and just the broader work that you're doing in addition to your roles within your uh, emergency management careers. And I'm just really grateful, um, not just for your time today, but also, uh, more broadly for the work that you're doing. We thank you. We definitely honor you for uh, taking the time to speak with us and to promote this very uh, important issue. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you a lot. Thanks a lot, Jeff. This is a great uh, opportunity to discuss important issues. All right. Thanks again to our guests, Chancia and Curtis. Really, really amazing perspectives, really important and something, you know, a topic that I think we're going to continue to come back to and continue to address uh, because there are just so many important perspectives out there. And it really does strike to the very, very core of what we're doing and why we do it to make sure that that the field is there for people when they need it the most. You know, if you like what we're doing on the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. Let's keep the conversation going. You can tweet at us. We're at DisasterPolitik or send us an email at DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in being on the show, drop us a line. Again, it's great to be back podcasting. Looking forward for more episodes to come. In the meantime, stay safe out there. Bye.